Um, hello and welcome to everyone joining us over Zoom and on Facebook Live. Uh, my name is Shubhanga Pandey. I'm the editor at Himal South Asian based in Colombo. And it's a pleasure for me to welcome you all uh, for another edition of South Asian Conversation, um, which is our series of online discussion where we you know, bring interesting and important voices from across South Asia and the world. Um, in the first edition of the series, uh, back in January, we looked at women politicians in South Asia, and uh, you can find a recording of that on our website and on our social media pages. Today's South Asia conversation is on COVID-19 vaccination. And uh, the plan is to think beyond the confines of medical science and public health and look at the, um, you know, what the ongoing vaccination campaigns tell us about the existing social and economic um, structures of our societies. So we have a, a wonderful panel of speakers um, who bring a variety of uh, regional and disciplinary experience uh, and expertise. And the discussion will be moderated by Thomas Abraham. Uh, Thomas is currently an associate professor at the Journalism and Media Studies Center at the University of Hong Kong and is based in Bengaluru. Uh, he also has over two decades of experience as a journalist. Um, he was the editor of the South China Morning Post and also a foreign correspondent for the Hindu. He's written extensively on epidemics and global health and is the author of 21st Century Plague, The Story of SARS, and most recently, Polio, The Odyssey of Eradication. So before I hand it over to Thomas, um, just a few points. So we will be posting some useful infographics in our chat room and also on our Facebook page. So people on Facebook Live or Zoom, uh, please check those two um, you know, it's useful infographics. Um, I should also add that um, you can support Himal South Asians independent non-nationalist journalism by becoming a member. Um, you can do that by going to our website, himalmag.com. And uh, along with a bunch of perks, you also get a copy of our famous right side up map delivered right to your, uh, your home. So please do that. Um, and over to you, Thomas. Thank you, Shubanka. Um, and welcome, everyone, to uh, this discussion on a subject that obviously cannot be more timely. Uh, the world and our region are in the midst of a crisis that at the moment is destroying more human lives than any war that we have seen. And this is a region, as we all know, that has seen many wars and conflicts. Um, I mean, Wars are perhaps more dramatic because there's physical destruction that you can see. Um, and because they involve physical destruction, you see human beings fighting with each other and so on. But this is a war between man and microbe. So it seems a little less dramatic, but we just need to look around and think about what we're all experiencing to know that the human cost has perhaps been higher. It has been higher. Um, we're here today to talk about the main shield that we have to protect ourselves and our societies against this virus, and that is vaccines. Um, it is fair to say that in all our countries, the rollout of vaccines has been painfully slow. There are some exceptions. Bhutan, for example, has managed to um, provide a first dose to 60% of its population. Well, in the Maldives, it is 55%. But then once again, these are just first doses. And we need two doses for any meaningful kind um, of, of long-term immunity to kick in. Um, in the rest of the region, the proportions are much, much lower. India, Nepal, uh, maybe 7 
8% for first doses, Sri Lanka a little lower, and so on. So this really is the issue that we need to confront. Um, the role of vaccines in our region in, and the role that it can have, the role that it might have in moderating this pandemic. Um, and to discuss this, we have an amazing panel uh, from across the region. Um, and I will introduce them shortly to talk, but let me just sort of uh, set out the, the issues that perhaps we will, that it'd be nice to discuss. First of all, what lies behind these low figures? What do these figures tell us about our region's ability to protect itself from the biggest threat to our existence that we have faced in recent times? What do these low figures tell us about the world that we live in? And most important, how do we move forward? So without further ado, let me um, uh, introduce our panelists um, in no particular order. We have um, Dwai Banerjee, who is an Associate Professor of Science, Technology and Society at MIT um, in Boston. Um, he is the author of a book, Enduring Cancer, which is an ethnography of cancer in India. Um, and he's currently working on a history of art, physics and computing in 1950s India. And he is a cultural anthropologist by training. Is that right? Is that right to say that? Okay, wonderful. Um, then we have Orzala Nemat, uh, based in Kabul, and she is director of the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit. Um, and by training, she is a political ethnographer um, with a lot of experience in the area of development studies. Um, she's also a research associate at the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies um, in London. Um, then from Colombo, we have Ravindra Rananelia, who is a public health professional. Um, he is ex executive director and fellow of the Institute um, of Health based in Colombo. And it's really wonderful to have a public health person on a discussion or on a Zoom call because uh, most of the time sort of the health or medical side is taken care of by clinicians. Um, you've got cardiologists, you've got eminent doctors and so on and so forth, but there is a huge difference between clinical medicine and public health. And so um, it'll, it'll be wonderful to have um, uh, Ravindra's uh, perspective on this. And last but certainly not least, we have Zaima Islam um, from Dhaka. She is a staff reporter at the Daily Star in Bangladesh. Uh, she focuses on rights-based investigation across a whole variety of sub subject areas. Um, and during this pandemic, she has been reporting on labor rights, freedom of expression, uh, preparedness of hospitals, so she, I guess, is our, our eyes and ears on the ground, away from, I guess, academic perspectives, but really giving us a ground-level view of, of, of where we are. Okay, so one of the things I would like to say is that we want really to make this as free-flowing a discussion as possible, and by free-flowing also involve the audience and get their perspective as well. 
because uh, as you know, many brains are much, much better than a handful of brains. And um, so uh, one of the ways we're doing this really is through, uh, through these polls. And we will um, also encourage the uh, uh, audience to uh, you know, give questions and so on. So the way we're going to do it is for the first hour or so, um, uh, we will hear from our panelists and then we will open it up uh, to the audience. So... Um, before we begin, it'll be nice to really ground because all of us are from different parts and from different. So, for each one of us from can give, if we could give, have some sort of perspective of where each one of our countries are or your countries are uh, as far as vaccination is concerned, both in terms of figures, in terms of feeling, of, of getting anywhere. Um, and um, so, perhaps I could I could begin with uh, Zaima. Yes, absolutely. So right now, our uh, vaccination program is, we are giving second doses only. We're not giving first doses to anyone anymore because um, we were we were getting um, vaccines from Serum Institute in India and that stopped because of the U.S. supply chain crisis. So, uh, for example, um, I'm waiting for my second dose. I got my first dose. I'm waiting for my second dose. But my dad, who was abroad, he he can't get his first dose anymore. And he is someone who definitely needs it more than me. We've only vaccinated about, um, we've only given, well, we've given first doses to about three, 3.6 million people. That's not, that's less than half the population of Dhaka itself. So Dhaka has about 8 million people. We are nowhere near vaccinating our, forget our entire population. We are not even vaccinating through the high-risk zones in in Bangladesh. Um, sometime, I think a week back, we reported that 54 out of um, 65 districts in Bangladesh were basically uh, being categorized as, as high-risk, high-risk, high-risk dis- districts because of the infection rate. So um, things are not really looking up right now over here for us. Ravi, can I turn to you next? Um, yeah, Mr. Sriyanka, Vaccination is a similar situation. Um, we we have just under a million doses. First doses given. There is a new uh, supply that has, I think is coming has come in, and they will st- announce the start of the start second doses for the people who got the first doses. Um, it's AstraZeneca. Um, the reason for the del- I mean the reason for the very slow slow rollout has been that simply the country hasn't been able to access vaccines. Uh, we had in fact the government had in fact uh, purchased and paid for large amounts from the Serum Institute, but obviously for reasons everyone understands now, uh, those, those, those doses are not coming anytime soon. And we've recently, uh, it's been announced that they will be buying now doses from Pfizer and from Sputnik. So it looks like we're shifting to those. I, I also recommended that we should shift to Pfizer and Sputnik. So basically very slow rollout, basically because the government can't get hold of doses and it placed its orders, I think, far too late. Ozala, um, what are things like in Afghanistan in terms of the vaccination campaign? Do people thank want you. to get vaccinated? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, it's a pleasure to be part of this uh, distinguished panel um, and uh, have the discussion. Uh, in the case of Afghanistan, uh, with the great uh, and generous support of the Indian government, we received a million vaccination. Uh, unfortunately, there aren't very accurate number of the people who have received the vaccination, but scatteredly speaking, 
in Kabul, uh, the capital of Afghanistan, with higher uh, concentration of population, there are centers where people can vaccinate themselves, but they are not crowded, according to my uh, resources. Uh, occasionally, some people who still can trust the vaccination, they attend and they receive it. Um, in terms of categorization, for some uh, strange reason, Afghanistan did not follow the same rules that other countries did. Uh, for example, at the moment, I'm based in uh, in London, but I work uh, fully um, on Afghanistan from here. I have not received my vaccination because here it's very strict and it's on age basis and on, on priority basis. In Afghanistan, I think one part that's probably followed this was the national security forces. They were offered the vaccination. Uh, there are no specific data whether it has been completed, like all of them are covered or not. With regards to the health centers, uh, those who trust the vaccines, they do uh, them. But I think the biggest, there are two issues. One, there are no clear categorization in terms of prioritization of who should take it. Uh, so that needs to be specifically clarified. And secondly, I think there is a major, major trust issue with the vaccination, even within households, within families, within educated, let alone the uneducated who don't completely believe in it. Uh, so people are having serious concerns, especially a small news about a vaccination not working spreads so faster as opposed to a large news of look how many lives are saved. Um, and campaigns are way too limited and restricted, maybe not even started the campaigns about awareness raising. Like it was only two, three days ago that uh, uh, we have learned, my organization learned about facilities of vaccination being available. Um, whereas uh, we know that vaccination has been available for weeks now in, in, uh, uh, in Kabul that people can go and have access to it. So numbers, I think, are serious. We don't, we haven't been well in terms of reporting the numbers accurately, even in terms of positive cases. But one overall observation I can share is that, unfortunately, um, in the case of Afghanistan, it's violence, ongoing conflict happening parallel to uh, the COVID spreading. And as we are heading towards the wave three, as we call it, uh, it's going to be extremely challenging because, for example, in insecure areas, it will be very, very difficult to even imagine that people will have access to vaccination um, or any form of treatment. It's a whole, it, we're getting a whole bunch of issues that we can sort of unpack as we move on. But uh, Twai, uh, would you like to talk about, uh, well, you, as a good global citizen, <laughs> you, you've got a choice of at least two places that you can talk about, India, um, as well as uh, your current physical location, and maybe draw a contrast between them. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'd say that I work more on India, but physically I'm located here. So uh, I've managed to get both my doses. Uh, what's interesting to me here is that there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy uh, unevenly divided across the country, but there is uh, a fair amount. Uh, for example, uh, there's a motion in California to recall the uh, congressperson because he's been too forceful about enforcing the vaccine. So um, at the same time, the rates of vaccination are fairly high. So in Massachusetts, where I live, uh, we're at about 55% for the uh, first dose and about 35% for the uh, uh, sector for people who got both doses. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested also to hear more about 
how much hesitancy actually prevents people from getting it when it comes to the uh, when it comes when it becomes available because i think as an anthropologist uh, notice people are able to hold two ideas at the same time uh, but they uh, even if they're hesitant they do sometimes go ahead with the vaccine uh, with india as you all well know it's uh, uh, uneven again uh, the rates uh, are between uh, 4 to 11% uh, the numbers are uh, difficult to gauge but it's uh, we're looking at much much uh, lower uh, rates of vaccination than we should have been able to uh, roll out at, by this point uh, so in at this rate we're looking at maybe may 2022 as a time where vac- uh, vaccines will be uh, anywhere close to the who guideline of 60% for herd immunity uh so the question also for me is what do we do in this long meantime where uh it's not going to be anytime soon that we're going to have vaccinations to the extent that it will be uh, a, a strong enough uh, uh it will be strong enough to stop the spread uh so what do we do in this in the next few months where we're seeing this unprecedented crisis in delhi and in other cities and other states where uh similar crises are going on but because of the unevenness of data reporting uh we don't know what is actually happening in other states that's wonderful and that actually what a really interesting point that we're going to come to later is what do we do you know we've given these low i mean as we move forward um what is the future hold for us and what do we have any alternatives but uh, before that I, I, there are a number of interesting things uh, clearly vaccine hesitancy based on low uh, low trust um uh, the issues of prioritization because i've seen different forms of prioritization uh, in bangladesh saima you've already got both your shots i understand um in other places oh you've got one shot already in other places it's you know they different categories of prioritization and really what do these different priority um when governments set different priority lists i mean what does it tell us about the governments themselves and um then of course we've got the whole issue of the shortage of supply which is a common thing and why in the year 2021 right are some parts of the world so short of supply while other parts um you know have have vaccinated significant proportions and have actually bought more than enough or ordered three times their population you know vaccine supply so that's another thing that um, these are three of four of the broad issues that um, I'd like we can um, that I hope we can unpack if all of you are uh, okay with that um perhaps we should begin with the issue of trust because that is something that as uh, you know it's come across repeatedly um and uh so perhaps i should uh, ravi as the public health person perhaps the person most directly involved in 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 immunization campaigns or with the most experience maybe i start with you on this what is the reason in the midst of a raging pandemic uh why is there such low trust in 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 vaccines um sure So just to just say one thing about Sri Lanka Sri Lanka historically we've not had a vaccine hesitancy problem and we have 90% right. coverage with this vaccines. Mm-hmm. So Sri Lanka is relatively unusual. Um but I think 
and, and the United States, I think, is at the other spectrum of this. So, you know, it's, it's quite it's a social difference. But the, I, I think right now, a couple of things. I think I'm not too worried at the moment about vaccine hesitancy for us. Because, you know, frankly, as I said, you know, Sri Lanka only has enough vaccines for 4%, 5%, mm. one dose. It doesn't really matter. I mean, just give it to whoever's going to take it at this point. Secondly, I think we do know, and I, this is from the United States, we know this, and I think the UK, once vaccines are given in bulk, we can see in the polling data that people's receptivity to the vaccine will change. So I, I, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not losing sleep over hesitancy at this point. I, I think it will get better. Uh, but since we don't have enough vaccines, it's sort of a hypothetical academic question. Now, why is this potentially worse for this vaccine? I, I think, you know, the, it, it's, it's not surprising. Um, you know, I, I don't know. There must be infinitely more social media and media discussion about COVID than any other infectious disease that we've ever discussed in the past in our lifetime. So it's, it's inevitable that people have views about this. Also, I think the fact that, you know, all these vaccines have been approved on an emergency use basis. They have not, and for reasons of necessity, you know, lives are at stake. We've rushed these things through. And so there is, of course, go, there is some grounds for people to have concerns. Now, of course, I'll tell you as a public health person, having a jab is better than having no jab, right? So even if it's a dangerous one. So I think that's clear. But because of that, I think the whole process, we will face more concerns from people about the risks. And, you know, it's, 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 it's legitimate. And I think we just have to deal with that. And I think two things I would say, I think we have to be very transparent about when we make decisions. And sometimes I know in Sri Lanka, some of the things they said about vaccines are not transparent. People try to sugarcoat things without being completely honest. And then it, with COVID, it always catches up you a few months later. So I think we really have to be careful about what we say and be and stick to the facts and be honest about the limitations. So I think that's what I would say. And I think you will get, you know, right now I'm not worrying about it. This is, this is a, Vaccine hesitancy is a problem of affluence, right? It's a problem for the United States. It's not a problem of scarcity, right? And and the real problem is the scarcity in our region. And I will point out one thing. This is a South Asian discussion, right? So remember, we are also incredibly fortunate. If you go to Africa, almost zero, it's basically zero people have got the vaccine. And they have had, in many ways, just as bad a pandemic. And we are completely forgetting about them. And I think Western countries forget about them because, you know, frankly, Asia is is the place where they take that, you know, where geopolitical tension is highest. But actually, the reality is things are even worse in Africa and things are pretty bad in Africa. There you go. Okay, so I think that it's another really interesting uh, uh, sort of stream that you have introduced into the discussion, and that is the fact that in our in you know in our region it's not so much vaccine hesitancy, but scarcity that is the issue. Um, hesitancy might come might be an issue later. We don't know once we have ample stocks of vaccine, if and when we do. But right now, the issue is scarcity. But you also spoke, and I really, uh, about the effect of social media, about this fact that you know, it's emergency use, and people don't quite understand perhaps what these things mean. And clearly, the, the disc, maybe they, you know, 
people are not that happy about this. They're not completely convinced. And you spoke about transparency, lack of transparency. So, um, Saima, I'd like to come to you since you're really perhaps more on the ground than anybody else in terms of what are people thinking about vaccines? Why are they not? I mean, if you had plentiful vaccines in, 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 in Bangladesh, would people be happily taking lining up? Uh, no, no, or I, are I, they worried about so tell me what, what what are people worried about so if you for example go to any vaccination center across across the city um the one thing that you've noticed that you'll probably notice is that the only people taking vaccines do belong to a more affluent class um you would see these like ramshackle run down public hospitals hosting uh vaccination centers with uh, beautiful plush leather couches for 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 the vaccine receivers to 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 rest on. Um, it's 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 really striking. I, I don't I do think that the hesitancy is something that we we're not necessarily concerned with it right now because we don't have enough vaccines. But the segregation is real. Uh, a certain class of people are getting vaccines first. And then there were a couple of, uh, when the vaccines first came, um, there were a couple of categories that were prioritized of them. Uh, for example, bureaucrats, civil servants were prioritized. Um, uh, frontline workers were prioritized. Educators were prioritized. Journalists. So people belonging to, um, well, professions. Uh, 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 so people, for example, belong, belonging to a lower socioeconomic class, they were not prioritized. They were not priority when it came to receiving vaccines, although they're probably the ones with uh, the lowest levels of immunity because they're probably the ones with lower levels of nutrition. And and we don't even know how many of them have been affected by COVID-19 because if you, for example, go to um, uh, 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 slums or like highly dense lower socioeconomic areas, you won't find people talking about COVID-19 at all. They're, they don't have access to masks. They don't have access to um, sanitation services as much as um, some of us, perhaps. But you won't find them actually talking about COVID-19 because for them being infected is is is, is a death sentence. Uh, it would mean that they would have to quarantine themselves for 14 days. And for example, if you're a daily wage earner, you're not going to want to quarantine yourself for 14 days. You know, you cannot afford to stay yeah. home. What are you going to eat? How are you going to feed your family? You're not going to... So, in the slums, um, and then this is something that caseworkers have been talking to us about, is that when they try, when they try to go and raise awareness about COVID-19, um, um, last year, they received such, uh, vicious, vehement, like, lash, uh, backlash from, from, from the, from the residents of different slum areas because they did not want to talk about COVID-19 at all. And even when, so the, we, we're in the middle of a lockdown right now, supposedly, but, the daily wage earners, uh, people who work uh, blue collar jobs, garments workers, they're still out and about. They're still going to work. So am I, but <laughs> they're going to work. And and they're the ones who probably needed vaccines first. But yeah, well, here we are. This is an issue that I think all of us are familiar with. And that is really the, the, the contradiction between, I mean, do you die of the virus or do you die of starvation? And that really is, I think... Uh, you know, the dilemma that uh, people all across face. And I think a whole discussion on vaccines also needs to be in this larger context. This is not a context that you have in the West where you don't have a choice between, uh, you know, you don't have to make this uh, choice between protecting yourself and and uh, and uh, being able to eat the next day. So I think uh, this is another thing that 
perhaps we'd like to come back and also um, throw before the, uh, throw to the audience. Ursula, um, I'd like to turn to you now because in addition to the issues that we've talked about already, Afghanistan has got this very special and very tragic situation of basically you're in armed conflict, you know? So you've got a virus, uh, you've got a vaccine, you've got a deeply divided society, um, plus you've got all of these other problems that we've been talking about in other countries, perhaps lack of trust, lack of access, lack of supply, um, people unable to protect themselves perhaps, um, lack of uh, you know basic mass, I don't know. But could you unpack some of these issues for us? Thank you. Uh, I'm listening to uh, Zaima speaking uh, from Bangladesh. I think we, we all share uh, a lot of similarities in this cases. Uh, I think in terms of research and uh, analysis, it probably is a time to go back and also draw some uh, some observations on how, for example, lockdown worked in our part of the world. For example, in Afghanistan, lockdowns were not were taken serious, by the way. When I talked to my colleagues last March, uh, they say, yeah, there were like a few weeks, only a few weeks, where you could see people were like wearing gloves and masks and just completely covering themselves. You could see that suddenly the overcrowded cities and the streets became like ghost places, but only for a few weeks until people figure out what was going on. And slowly, everyone was back, and particularly for, for daily laborers, for small and medium enterprises. This was something that they couldn't afford. We've seen a huge uh, impact on, on even middle class, the lower middle class uh, community, not the poor of the poorest because they anyway didn't have much to lose, but it was people who could manage somehow their life with the incomes coming daily on weekly basis and they lost it completely in that period. And soon after, the people got into the state of denial. Politicians also got into the state of denial because of the 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 these sort of the high speed of the political processes happening. Politicians need rallies. I'm sure this is also shared in other parts of the South Asia. I've seen the Indian rallies. So for that rallies, you need masses. And and there is that's the I think if we can look into this global pandemic and have some sort of a court of justice at the international level, we have to you know bring these people to prosecution because they literally deliberately put people into at risk uh, uh you know uh, bringing them together and this time where we know the 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 the, the, the threats of virus is not different from the threats of war uh, it takes lives and that's what matters war takes life covid takes lives uh so that is there uh, in in and if we compare the hesitancy versus the availability of vaccination i think I go with the fact that uh, definitely if the vaccines are available and people make choices not to take them, it's a different con a conversation. But at the moment, the issue and probably I was earlier mentioning about the campaigns and, and somehow hesitancy towards raising too much awareness on the vaccination is probably the fear of government saying that, oh, if what if we give people the means to trust vaccines and then not give them vaccines, then what? So there will be more uh blaming towards the, the the government and and i see in terms of you know an equal distribution of this and i see there is a lot of uh, sort of international power rivalry also coming into play when we talk about the vaccinations earlier uh, i heard uh, someone mentioned about you know some countries having more than what they need and some countries have not enough uh, there are people 
from our family, from our relatives who live in different parts of, for example, Europe, and some have received two, uh, younger people have received two uh, shots, uh, two, two doses, but the, the elderly who are more sort of vulnerable have not received their first. So that kind of um, inequality in the world has also reflected very clearly in the case of COVID-19. And, and earlier I mentioned about the, the sort of security and conflict. We are in the armed conflict. And as we speak, the operations uh, and is uh, ongoing, unfortunately. Uh, the unfortunate reality in terms of linkages between conflict and COVID is that, unfortunately, from the very beginning of it up until now, as we speak, for none of the parties to conflict, this became a serious matter. Yes, they have raised issues. For example, the Taliban said, oh, for a period of time, they delayed a few weeks their uh, meetings in Doha earlier last year by saying, oh, many of our members have been uh, infected by, by COVID. But that was it. As soon as they recovered, uh, uh, and, and I'm not sure uh, what is the situation in Doha, but probably their top leaderships are already vaccinated with two dosages. It's it's the, the, the masses back home, uh, the food soldiers, the ordinary ground uh, for, uh, forces that have not no uh, access to vaccination, and uh, whether they are the Taliban soldiers or the Afghan national security forces or the ordinary civilians. Uh, the vaccination is not available. And even if it becomes available, I believe countries like us would require further additional um, management uh, systems to really properly distribute it to ensure that there is humanitarian access to all parts where we can sort of uh, try to um, to reach to to the uh, maximum of the population. Thank you. Actually, this is really, it's, many of you have said the same thing. So I'm going to look at a couple of common themes. One, I think, uh, before we talk about hesitancy, let's look at supplies, right? Because without supplies, and uh, Ravi, I think you put that really uh, very eloquently, there's no point, you know, let's get to supplies first, and then we talk about uh, hesitancy. And then, Orzla, you also talked about, um, and uh, Saima as well, in terms of, we live in countries that are characterized by scarcity, right? Scarce public health infrastructure, even if you do have, I do have people to actually, and this is not like polio, where anyone, you know, you can, uh, but you really need tra- trained health. You have the health infrastructure to do this. Um, Saima, you talked about, you know, the dilemma of the uh, textile workers, for example, or any daily wage workers on what they need to do. So, um, Dwight, can I start? Uh, come back to you to start kicking off some of these balls, in particularly the issue of scarcity within a global context. Uh, and the fact that, we, as we all know, there are three or four vaccine manufacturing hubs globally. Um, and while the demand is universal. So in a sense, what does this tell us about the world? What does the way that vaccines are divided tell us about the the so-called globalized 21st century world that we live in? Uh, That's a great question. And uh, as uh, uh, I, I think Simon Urzula brought up, the, there are countries uh, which have several times the number of doses that they need, at least on order, if not actually at hand. Uh, Canada is an extreme interesting example because it's perhaps the one which has the most on paper, it has 10 times almost uh, the number of doses it needs, except I have friends in Canada who are not getting it uh, because 
the pre-orders didn't seem to be the right ones. And so it's not actually uh, what it sounds like. But the general question is very much this, that Western Europe, most countries have three to four times what they, on order at least, uh, three to four times of what, uh, what they need. And we're forgetting often Africa in this discussion where uh, there is almost no hope of getting any sort of uh, supply until the end of 2022, if this is what goes on. So we have a situation where uh, the top uh, few countries have uh, monopolized 85% of the doses uh, that uh, of what might be available in the next few months. So what has been done to address this problem and where is India's place in this is an interesting question for me because as we know, there was this moment during the HIV AIDS crisis where CIPLA and uh, Indian manufacturers really stepped up and uh, MSF uh, was distributing at one point of time uh, Indian uh, antiviral th therapies uh, that were for the uh, in Africa that were uh, for most part 90% were uh, from being produced in India. Uh, so I think the, there's a really interesting comparison between then and now because then there was a real political will to make sure that uh, regardless of patent rights, regardless of uh, international U.S. pressure, uh, countries still went ahead and uh, enforced compulsory licenses and so on. This time around, there hasn't been the same sort of political will. Uh, and the way in which global distribution is happening is not necessarily based on need as much as it's based on uh, people being able to buy it. So India is exporting it, but not in the last way where they were mostly exporting it to places where needed it, but they're exporting it to people who will buy it. They're also uh, not, yeah, so it's 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 a very different epidemic now than the one that we have in recent memory. Um, yeah, so it would be interesting to come back to the question of uh, where's India's place uh, and a very changed place in the role of actually not being a source of scarcity, but a place where uh, production was at one point of time uh, crucial to public health across the world. I'll come to you in a minute. But before that, Zaima, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, I mean, I think the big question that we need to address is, is why are there so few people or so few centers of vaccine manufacture globally? Because um, and the technology is not, you, you get vaccines across a variety of technologies, right? And it's not rocket science. We have enough trained manpower in the region um, to be able to do this. The economics perhaps may not work. But Saima, I know that Bangladesh is, there is a company in Bangladesh that is working on a vaccine. Uh, and I believe clinical trials have already begun. Now, I just saw a small reference to this in a news item somewhere, but very little about who is doing this, what, you know, what stage they're at, what kind of vaccine, and really what their aim is. Is it, you know, do they see them as, 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 as a manufacturing, new manufacturing hub in South Asia? So I wonder, um, do you have anything on this? So I can, I can, I don't think I can speak at length about this, but I do know what you're talking about. So mm -hmm. uh, what you're talking about is co-vaccine that's being produced. They finished clinical trials for that. Um, the organization that you're talking about is ICDDRB, the International Center for Diarrheal Diseases Research. Um, 
Bangladesh. Uh, they, they, they're, they're also, they've, they've worked on vaccines in the past. They, they've worked on the cholera vaccine. Um, they've, they've, they've been, they've almost entirely eradicated cholera in Bangladesh. They, they are still, uh, uh, right now they're, when it comes to vaccines, they really are the premier organization. So they finished clinical trials, but they're, they're still waiting for uh, approval for actual human trials to begin. And this is that they're doing this in 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 uh, conjunction with Bharat uh, Biotech, and unfortunately, since the, the actual trials have not happened, this is not something that we are going to going to pr- production for anytime soon. We have also just started, um, and this this happened uh, today. The government is now going to go go for co-production for Sinopharm and um, uh, Sputnik. So Sinopharm is, is is the vaccine from China, and Sputnik is the vaccine for, from Russia. So we're and the government has allowed it as 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 an emergency use measure. So we don't know any more details about that as of yet because it's still very very much developing. In fact, it literally just broke um a, a couple of hours before before this this webinar. So we're still we we I think this is a developing story and we need to figure out who is actually going to be producing um on this vaccine. We do have a very thriving pharmaceutical sector. That that is something we can definitely um talk about, but. But I'm not sure who who's going to be producing it. It's really interesting. And the other thing, of course, is that if we look at from the context of global politics, you've got to wet you've got Western sources of vaccine uh, based in the in Europe, but you've also got Russia and you've got China, and you had India. You will have India again. So you you're seeing a multipolar, and and you you also are seeing real competition between them, right? Everybody is waiting for somebody else to move out and, you know, say, okay, if the West is not, if India cannot give you vaccines or if the U.S. cannot give you, we've got this excellent vaccine, don't worry, we'll manufacture it there and so on and so forth. So, Ravi, I want to come to you on this because I know you've got strong ideas and and, and you've thought this through as well. Two issues, really. One is in terms of public health, Sri Lanka but from the time of independence or even before, has been a leader in public health and childhood immunization. I mean, the rates have been sort of developed country rates for several decades now, I think. Um, plus, in terms of manufacturing, you know, the sort of scientific manpower, I don't think there's any shortage either. So um, why is Sri Lanka facing a shortage of vaccines? That's question number one. And number two, how do you see this sort of playing out in the larger global context? Okay, so let me do this Sri Lankan situation. I mean, yes, we do have very high vaccine coverage, but the key thing to note is that it's partly, I mean, we have also very good access to medicines, but it's basically because we've chosen to import. We go for the cheapest producer for most things, and India is our producer, basically, for most things. And so we have, you know, ridden on the Indian industrial pharmaceutical industry success for the past 30, 40 years, and we simply basically import those products. Now, there is some local production increasingly going on, but the we have separated importing and production from the issue of access. So in this particular case, we don't actually have any real vaccine production capacity. So although we produce some drugs, we basically import APIs you know, from China or from wherever, and we package them like India does. We don't actually have any vaccine production going on. So this is not something that I think we could jump to, I might say, maybe India or Bangladesh. So that, that, I think, is, you know, the short answer. Now, why did we not, the real other question is why we didn't order vaccines early enough. I mean, we're not the poorest country in the region, right? I 
I think, on the Maldives is richer than us in, in South Asia. And the reason for that is I think there was a lot of complacency. Uh, last year, we did relatively well. And then I think people, which is, you know, game-related overall COVID response, they haven't fully understood the what was required on the vaccination front. And maybe I should just spell it out. I mean, COVAX is giving us, you know, 20%. In theory, who knows when you'll get it, but you'll get it at some point, 20, 27%. That is simply not going to cut in terms of getting herd immunity. And then this mantra, which I think WHO and most experts said a year ago when they had to guess a number, they said 60, 65% herd immunity coverage. That number's not true, right? I mean, we know better now, right? I mean, the fact is, if you want herd immunity with uh, let's say most of the vaccines you need 75 to 90% coverage under all circumstances. So that's number one. The second problem is these new variants. They completely upset the outcome, right? I mean, with B117, and the, and the recent news in the past week from Sri Lanka is it's basically realized we now have a B117 epidemic, right? So this is where like the UK, uh, fortunately we don't have the Indian variant, which is even worse. But the problem with B117 is you cannot get herd immunity with AstraZeneca or with Sinopharm or with Sinopharm. You need 90% efficacy vaccines. There's only really three of them. There's basically uh, Pfizer, Moderna. Pfizer is available for a few rich countries. Moderna is basically not available to anyone outside the United States. And that leads on Sputnik. And Sputnik doesn't have the production capacity and, and the know-how. So this is this is the problem we face, right? So, and I think the Sri Lankans didn't quite realize this, and it's only now when the Indian supply vanished that we have placed the orders for Pfizer and Sputnik out of I think desperation, and I think it still hasn't completely sunk in that we need very high levels of coverage. So the, the president last week said vaccination is going to be you know the final solution to the problem. I don't know. What they told him, because we haven't ordered enough doses to get herd immunity, even with Pfizer. So I think, I think this is a, a political level problem, and I think also related to bad advice uh, internationally and also locally. So that's Sri Lanka's problem. Global problem, um, I mean, I think there's a good and a bad to this. Um, we need to be honest that in one sense, there's been an incredible achievement, right, to produce the vaccines we've got. You know, normally, Countries vaccinate kids, you know, when they're 18 months, or, you know, everyone gets one or two shots of this and that vaccine. We vaccinate two, three percent of the world every year. Four or five percent, maybe, if you count all the different doses. We're suddenly asking the world to produce 80, 90 percent of the world in 12, 24 months. We're talking about a 10, you know, tenfold increase in production. That cannot be done by any single country or any single economic bloc. And the great, and, you know, it's not just a question of, you know, Bangladesh can set up a factory, they have the expertise, there are all these supply inputs. I mean, you know, in India, Serum Institute couldn't produce because it couldn't get plastic bags from America, right? So this, the supply chain cannot, you know, provide the inputs. People talk about relaxing patents and mRNA vaccines, the, the key inputs into the mRNA vaccines by Pfizer are incredibly short supply, right? So it's not as if, oh, we have the technology to do this. The supply chain is really messed up. Now, in order for us to have solved this problem, we would have had to cooperate globally 
on vaccine production. And, and the tragedy for us, and this is the bad, is that this pandemic happened, you know, started at the end of Trump administration, but it happened at the beginning of the new Cold War. And this isn't Trump, this is a trend which has been going on in the West, particularly in the United States for many years, but it predates Trump. We, we entered into an era where the United States, I think, primarily recognizes that its number one position is under long-term threat. As Biden said to Congress recently, they would do whatever they can to stay in that position. And that's the context. So this has made global cooperation incredibly difficult, if not impossible. The last time we did global vaccines for everyone to kill a virus, and people, and, you know, the public health people know this was smallpox. Smallpox happened because the United States had enough leadership and vision and humanity to recognize smallpox affects us all. The Soviets have the vaccine technology and the production facilities, and we will give them greenbacks to pay for that, and we can distribute that to the world, to, you know, to India or whoever else, right? And a lot of the Indian vaccine production capacity dates from the smallpox era. That's not happened this time, right? I mean, the, the United States, some of the producers in China and Russia are under sanctions. Uh, if you look at PCR testing, which is another critical constraint, the biggest PCR manufacturer in the world is in China. It's under sanctions from the United States in the middle of a pandemic. And the supply chains are messed up. They won't even give stuff to Europe, as you know, or to India. You know, they're doing a little bit for India now. But this failure to cooperate is really us. And I, I really don't see how we get the huge quantities of good vaccines we need quickly enough unless the world cooperates. And that really ultimately means Washington has to change its strategy. Um, I would note the Europeans are generally open to cooperation. The Chinese and Russians have said they're open to cooperate. They've asked for cooperation, but it's Washington. I think I don't know how we get Washington to understand that its geopolitical strategy vis-a-vis China cannot override the need of humanity. We have to cooperate. China has significant vaccine capacity. And I think for the next few months, because India's problems that it's facing, the only spare capacity in the world right now is going to be in China. And the Chinese don't need to vaccinate. If we could tell China, guys, don't vaccinate your population. Protect, you know, keep your borders secure. Please don't vaccinate yourselves. Please give your vaccine production and we'll help you produce more. We'll help them get them approved. And also the Russians don't have production capacity. They need to work with the Europeans and Indians. I think we need to be helping them. Thank you, Ravi. I've got Dwight, I think you wanted to come in there. Um. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more that the uh, uh, issue of production is not a technical one as much as it's a political one. So uh, why does India have the production capability it does in the first place? In the 1970s, we did not have any vaccine, any pharmaceutical production capacity at all. It was uh, very much one or two legal changes by a government that wanted to change the colonial picture that within 10 years, double, triple, then exponentially uh, created a pharmaceutical industry that did not exist. So the fact that there was production in, at a certain time was a political outcome. Uh, now, I think uh, 
uh, and he's right that this is, it's a Cold War geopolitics, but I think the issue is deeper than that. I think the significant and central issue is a capture of uh, the U.S. government by the pharmaceutical lobby. So it isn't even necessarily in the U.S. government's interest to uh, not play a larger role in the global stage in different ways it can work to its advantage. What is really holding them back is the uh, uh, fact that uh, pharmaceutical the major four or five corporations have made sure that uh, the patent rights uh, trump the lives of people. And uh, that is a, a, in the middle of a pandemic and a completely unconscionable situation where uh, the reason that we cannot produce some of these vaccines is not because India doesn't have the ability to produce a Moderna or a Pfizer. It's because the companies have held on to these uh, technical expertise and will never uh, allow it to be uh, distributed across the world. Uh, so it's a very specific, you can point it very specifically down to four corporations and their lobby pressure in the U.S., uh, government that we have the inequality of distribution that we do now. And the last thing, the a very telling uh, case in this is the AstraZeneca vaccine, where uh, you saw that it was being, uh, well, it was produced uh, very much within a public institution, the Oxford Labs. Uh, but the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation put so much pressure on the university uh, that uh, they ended up licensing it to only one uh, uh, manufacturer AstraZeneca and uh, there was a possibility then of having a different idea of what access to AstraZeneca would mean which would mean actual knowledge actual access to the knowledge of production a uh, technology transfer if you will not just a license and that was shut down and that was shut down by a big global public health it's uh, foundation and we should ask why wh whose interest is that in to uh, deny uh, technical knowledge of production to most of the world Thanks very much. So, um, you know, I want to move to uh, Saima Orzala. Do you want to come in on this particular discussion? Otherwise, here's what I would like to do. Probably got another five, ten minutes we can talk among ourselves uh, before we throw it open. Now, I think we've set these problems out, and especially looking at the global, whether it's conflict, whether it's the global structures that we have, um, uh, that we live in, uh, that, you know, we have sort of frozen into. The question now is what can we do about this? Right. Um, and what are some of the uh, things that as a region, because one should never be helpless. Um, you can always blame other people for your problems, but your problems are not going to go away. Ultimately, unless you do something yourself, only you can solve your own problems. So what do you think? And just, just thinking of the top of your head, I mean, do, do, do you sort of see some sort of a South Asian and regional public health infrastructure, not just for vaccines, but for, you know, future preparedness for communicable, non-communicable disease, pandemic preparedness. Um, is this something that can happen? I think it's something that should happen. If it cannot happen, is or is this just being idealistic? Are we sort of, sort of so frozen in the existing global structures that nothing's ever going to happen? So I want to throw it to, to um, let me start with you, Zaima. I mean, from your perspective in Bangladesh, which is also geostrategically in as, um, as as important a location as Afghanistan is, you know, one is on the east and the other is on the west. Um, 
Bangladesh is also deeply committed to, I mean, in terms of SAR, it's been one of the sort of countries uh, uh, that sort of has been pushed this. Uh, what do you think? I mean, do you see any possibility or what are the possibilities for breaking out of these structures, for doing some sort of regional thing? I mean, you talk about Bharat Biotech and so on, uh, but how can we create solutions now within working as a region? as more than one-third of the world's population, right? In fact, in fact, just yesterday, uh, the foreign ministers of six nations, um, six, well, there was China, and then there were five South Asian countries, which included um, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and Bangladesh. They issued a joint statement saying that vaccine nationalism cannot be a thing. And this is, this is such a rare occurrence where, where, where six foreign ministers of this region actually put out a statement like this this is honestly a cry for help and this is something and, and I, I i understand that there is willingness of course to to work together i'm just not sure that um especially since so much of this is beyond the control of, of just this region i'm not sure the solution is something that we can envision at this moment but 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 they are definitely coming together that's all i can say right now Thank you. Um, in terms of what needs to be done, uh, listening to excellent points that uh, Ravi has made in uh, Dawa as well, uh, I think uh, definitely we are in a situation that the global um, power relations is affecting uh, also uh, uh, the same way other forms of inequality is affecting us. Here also it's a reflection of that sort of um, inequality showing itself. So uh, it's very clear, and uh, I'm happy, pleased that uh, Zaima brought up the statement yesterday. I was going to mention that. Uh, in fact, uh, is 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 very important at this time to have a stronger solidarity. And the region, the SAR countries, or the or the South Asia uh, uh, region, is one of the regions that has very particular characteristics as opposed to many other regions. Say, for example, Africa. Uh, it's shocking to hear that they have zero access to vaccination. Uh, but that also is probably a reflection of their importance in terms of, you know, emerging economies. They are not at the moment an emerging economy. They are a recipient of investment from emerging economies. And that's why they become completely, as a continent, completely forgotten. So we do have these incredible strengths that we can use it in terms of lobbying and putting some level of pressure. So if, you know, from small countries like Afghanistan to larger countries like India, and I don't know where Indonesia and the broader Asian region or South East Asia are laying in that. But I think what I can see very concretely as practical steps that we can take is at least to first come up with this kind of conversations where we can map what's happening. I'm learning a lot from this conversation today in terms of, you know, the effectiveness of different vaccination and the degree of their effectiveness. Uh, back home, when, when people talk about AstraZeneca, they talk more, they highlight the, some side effects that are being rumored, you know, that these are the side effects and so forth, but not the efficacy of the vac vaccination, which is a case. So we are also like, uh, one thing we can do is to keep more regular awareness of our population, particularly, I think, through the professional channels and people who are, you know, having the qualification to speak so that we avoid all kind of conspiracies and all other things that are also probably part of the market strategies by certain, you know, 
companies in in competition. Uh, another thing we can do is not to only limit this to a kind of a vaccine diplomacy, as it is called in the foreign relations, uh, you know, subject, but you know, build that bridge between the foreign relations or foreign relations or IR diplomacy of vaccination and the actual medical needs that are there. I think that bridge is not really significant at the moment. Uh, and for different reasons, starting from the United States last year uh, up to many other parts of the world, I think that also really contributed significantly in, in, in creating a more chaos rather than managing this pandemic better uh, than we were expecting. Uh, and thirdly, something that at least uh, um, uh, I'm happy to say that ARU, Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit, is part of are these consortiums. We are part of a broader consortium led by an Institute of Development Studies, IDS, in the UK, where organizations from India, from different South Asian regions, and also from uh, countries in Africa, I believe, in uh, uh, several other parts, are uh, members of this consortium doing a more systematic research, not necessarily on the vaccination, but overall on the impacts of uh, COVID-19. I think research and continuous studies is a way of, you know, pushing more for evidence-based uh, type of advocacy that we need to do. So there are some, these are some, some sort of thinking in my head to, to, to share with you all, but I mean, definitely uh, emphasizing more uh, on the importance of continuing this conversation and particularly bringing in the US, China, Russia, uh, all these major countries together and make this conversation to side that they also can represent and can be face to face with professionals from, from the South Asian region or broader region to have these conversations. Thank you. Thank you, Ozla. Before I kick the ball to you, Ravi, there's one thing I would like to caution against. And that is the notion that Africa has no access to vaccines. They're not a helpless basket case. Um, both funding from the um, African Development Bank, the African Union has raised huge amounts of money, uh, some from philanthropies, local philanthropies. I mean, they're rich people in Africa as well. So most, in fact, they big countries, Malawi was one of the first countries to get access to the Pfizer um, vaccine. Um, and because they... They could afford it. So in a sense, I think we're all pretty much, we all have the same potential. We have the same capabilities. We have the same structures. We have the same access to funding. We are, in a sense, constrained by the same global system, but none of us are helpless. And um, so I think that's just something, uh, because I've been looking at African access to vaccines, I've been studying for a while. And to be honest, three, four months ago, when I started looking at it, I was also surprised by the extent of what they've done. Um, but anyway, that's by the by. Uh, Ravi, uh, let me pull you into this now. It's just some observations on all this. Um, I mean, I actually, I mean, I'm, I'm all in favor of relaxing the patents and, and, and trying to, uh, you know, not allow four companies to dominate everything I think that, that I was raising. But I, I think that's a very simplistic. I think it's a, it's, you know, again, it's, it's a view that comes from, uh, from having a lot of vaccines in the West, right? It's a, it's a view of affluence. And then, and I certainly recognize, for example, the Biden administration has many people in the administration who are Pfizer shareholders, right? As people call it, a science mm. advisor has $5 million or something of stock. But I don't think that's what's driving it. I mean, let, let's be completely frank about this, right? Mm. Second, even if we could give these technologies, let's be honest, even where they had the vaccine patents and the, and they were starting production. These big manufacturers have had huge problems. Even serum 
this problem didn't just happen because of, of, of supply input problems from America. It happened, it was happening earlier. They've had problems scaling up, right? It, this is to produce the amount of vaccines we need and the quantity we need at the speed we need. It's like going to the moon. We need a superhuman effort to do it, but it has to be a global moon shot, not an American moon shot. And I think we need to be realistic about this. Now, the other thing I would just say is we are running a race against time, right? Because the more this virus spreads, and let's, let's be honest, for all the hoopla about vaccines, as WHO has reported, the case count in the last week is the highest it's ever been in the pandemic. Things are not getting better. And the more the virus spreads, the more of these variants we're getting, some of which will undermine the existing vaccines, right? And, you know, rich countries are preparing. They're already buying. You know, the United States has already bought a third Pfizer shot they announced. They are preparing for that, whilst the rest of the world don't even have their first shot. So if we're going to solve this problem, we need to vaccinate the whole world very rapidly to stop these variants evolving. Right. And so this is not simply have, you know, a question of mind. And that's primarily for me, it's a production problem, which requires global public action. And why do I say public action? The United States got one thing right, right? They, they got the vaccine production right. Right. And why did they get it right? It wasn't the free market. I mean, you know, do I said, oh, these four private companies, yeah, they're making lots of money, but we didn't get there because the market worked. We got there because the United States put its hand in its wartime toolbox, you know, the Defense Production Act, which is its wartime production powers. It's based from the Korean War, but it goes back to the Second World War when they used central planning to defeat Nazism, right? And so they, what does that act allow them to do? They can issue contracts without bidding. They can order companies to produce stuff by fiat. They can set prices. Companies have no recourse to the courts on this, right? They need an intensive state action. So we need to learn from this the major, the leading capitalist economy that we need state action, but we need it globally. So the Chinese have not really done this. The Europeans definitely have not done this. We need concerted government state action across the world to fix the supply chains and get the production. So I think we need to be a bit more realistic about this. And we we need to do this very rapidly because otherwise, you know, we are facing another two or three years of difficulties. Maybe the only optimistic thing we can say is the rich countries will protect themselves and wall themselves off from the rest of us and they'll be okay. But for, for people in South Asia, we can't. And I, I think we really need to step up and address this. Now, what can we do as a region? There is increasing agency, seems to me, for, you know, it used to be called the third world, but the world, the developing world, which does not belong to the power block. So I think we have to step up and make our voice heard. And that's good to hear that, you know, the, the prime minister said, uh, as I had said, the, the minister said regionally recently that we need action on this at the global level. And I think it has to be done maybe through the UN or the G20. It cannot be done. I read some editorial in, in an American journal saying the G7 should act. Well, that simply misses the point. G7 is, is the Western countries. We need G20 or UN Security Council action to put in place a global solution. This is if we want to solve this. Otherwise, I think you know we can improve things at the margin, but we face a very long slog.
Okay, thank you. Uh, a lot of food for thought you give. Now I notice, um, Shubhanga, shall I, can I throw this open? Because we've got a lot of questions coming in. I possibly respond to Ravi's uh, comments just now for just a quick second? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. The uh, The problem isn't necessarily just patent rights because production is globally tiered in particular ways. Uh, at the same time, I think what some of the uh, problems with the global distribution uh, uh, aspect are is that the mechanisms for distribution are also being captured by uh, U.S. and pharmaceutical interests. So we do have uh, a global uh, fora for vaccine dis- production and distribution, which is uh, two big ones. Uh, the main one is COVAX uh, 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 initiative that many countries, 180 countries have bought into, including the U.S. now. But it won't work. It won't work for the simple reason that it requires uh, 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 it's purely voluntary on the part of the rich countries. They can sign as many bilateral deals as they want. COVAX will not produce anything close to what is required. And it's almost a front, I would say, uh, by uh, the richer countries to say that there is this, we are doing all this global uh, coordination, but it's it's not the right answer. It's definitely the wrong answer. We have, and we're not helpless because we have tools at our disposal that are, uh, that have been legally used before. And one of them is compulsory licensing uh, of a certain kind. That's one of the ways that the Nelson Mandela government uh, put pressure on uh, the U.S. And the one question that has been raised with compulsory licenses is that it doesn't always entail a technology transfer. That doesn't have to be the way. Compulsory licenses can enact very strong uh, uh, restrictions and enforce contracts upon uh, global corporations. Um, at the same time, uh, what are we doing in and not doing and not showing helplessness in these global forums in WTO and the UN? We are asking for a very specific thing, which is a waiver of the TRIPS protocol. Now, I'm all in favor of waiver of the TRIPS protocol, which would mean every country would be able to produce and sell, etc. The problem is, again, it will never happen because the WTO works on a consensus-based model where every country has to agree. We're never going to get more than half to. So what is India and other global South countries doing by pushing the uh, uh, the TRIPS waiver agreement? Uh, I think they should uh, uh, trying a moonshot that is bound to fail. And ignoring real possible, uh, already on the cards, tried and tested approaches like compulsory licensing, uh, to enforce a different model of distribution and not COVAX or CTAP and these other models that have been proposed by the US. And we've got two, uh, uh, really interesting viewpoints on this. I don't think we're going to resolve this. And Shubanga, can I throw this over? We've got a lot. Of, I've got a lot. Of, there are a lot of questions on the chat, and you've probably got stuff coming in on the uh, um, on Facebook. I don't know. I haven't been monitoring it. Um, so, can we throw this open now to um, to our wonderful audience? Um, and how would you like me to do it? Can I, can I take a couple from there, from here, and then? If you've got some from Facebook, we could sort of. Okay, this is actually, uh, this is something, and I'm going to, uh, Ravi, I'm going to throw this to you as our only epi public health person. How much worry is there uh, around this becoming endemic due to vaccine shortage? And we've actually addressed this uh, tangentially, but uh, 
very direct question, leading to rapid mutations, which the newer vaccines will have to chase. Do we get, do we get ahead anytime in the near future? So basically, this is a very, where do we go from here? Yeah, so I think, I mean, this is honestly what I did. I think I mentioned this earlier. This is my biggest concern, right? I mean, what we know about these mutations is they've emerged in countries with high levels of infection. So, you know, Brazil, the UK, South Africa, and of course now India. India was almost inevitable, right? And we need to drive the, 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 the transmission down to very low levels to reduce the chance of this happening. Because, you know, it's not just the B117 that's increasingly you know, just more infectious. It's the ones which are immune resistant are very problematic for us. And it means that we may have to restart and vaccinate everyone again a second time, right? And this is, you know, we're talking about the problems today. Can you imagine the problems of doing that? So I, I think this is a really big concern. And I think we have, as I say, we need very, we need some kind of global coordination to figure out how do we do this. In fact, I would say, the vaccines need to go to the countries who have the worst transmission. It's in everyone's global interest. The problem is it's not in national interest to do that, right? So, and it's not in national interest to do that because until countries can believe that there's an outcome at the end where we kill the virus at the end, everyone's just going to be protected themselves. And the rich countries will do that better than everyone else, right? So until we can make it feasible for people to say, yes, we can produce the vaccines, which are effective against the new variants, and we can do it fast enough to essentially squash transmission, and then we'll be okay because then we can go for elimination. I think we have a big problem, and I, I am worried about this. Right? I mean, India, you can see what's going on. I mean, my my estimate was, you know, in Delhi, that previously you probably had 50, 60, 70 percent previous infection, right? And we know that the real virus is better than most vaccines at protection, immune protection. And yet now we see what's going on in, in, in India. So, and we saw this in Brazil, in Manaus, where they had, you know, 78% herd immunity. And then a new variant came along and things were even worse than, than the first wave. So we, we face a really serious problem. And I, I think people do not yet understand the gravity of the problem we face as a world, as a human race, and, and, the, and the cooperation that we need to fix it. Because it, it really is a problem. This is what I worry about. So that, um, Dwight, is a, I saw a question specifically for you and well, IP-related question um, regarding Moderna. I'm trying to find it now. Now that, yeah. Moder- now that Moderna has shared their IP, how will that impact vaccine production? How will that impact other, uh, other this thing? I mean, not compulsory licensing, but um, mm-hmm. here you have them. So what are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. Uh, first thing about Moderna, it did not come up with this again on its own to echo Ravi's point. Uh, it's just a few streets away from me. So I've been able to track them for the last years. They uh, have large sums of undisclosed DARPA fund, which is uh, U.S. Army funding. Uh, they've been funded by the U.S. state uh, and subsidized. So the Moderna vaccine is basically a taxpayer-based vaccine. They have not put in any money in the in the big picture. So what does it mean for them to license out IP in the first place? It's not their IP to begin with. This is the IP that has been developed thanks to US taxpayer money. Uh, 
Okay, that's a utopic picture. Now that there is this idea to license our IP, Moderna is not the only one. AstraZeneca is doing it. Other com- nearly every big pharma company said something to the version of they won't profit from this and licensing, and they will license it out. One, they have strict stipulations. Uh, the language is vague. So there are strict stipulations how long this licensing will last, if at all. Uh, they do not allow for technology transfers. Uh, so it doesn't entail a uh, uh, enlargement of production, uh, the, and very, uh, very simply, a license is when it's coming from the point of view of the corporation. Uh, it limits what can be done with it uh, very, very strongly. A license works when it's coming from the point of view of the demand, where uh, you actually frame it in the ways that. Uh, are needed in order for it to be made to circulate at scale. Uh, so, I, yeah, these are, again, I think, a very clear outcome of the uh, last 20 decades of bad PR for pharma companies, where they were shamed in uh, many ways. And so they've developed a really sophisticated strategy, uh, which is to say that they will, uh, quote-unquote, license out their vaccines, except when it comes down to the ground, uh, licensing does not really uh, even come close to answering the question of global inequity. Thank you. Okay, Shibanga, uh, so this is the poll that uh, some of the audience took. Um and the questions were, have you been vaccinated? One dose, 44%, uh, which is probably higher than the regional average, I would say. Second dose is 13%, which is definitely higher than the... Uh, so we're a privileged group of people here um, than the regional, uh, not yet 50%. And what is interesting, and that brings us to the point and. Uh, which was made earlier. Um, I don't trust COVID vaccines as 0%. Now, there could be two reasons for this. One is in a group like this, it is self-selective. Uh, and number two, even if I'm a vaccine skeptic, listening to all these brilliant people on the panel and, you know, there's peer pressure and so on and so forth. So they, we, we need to take this with a slight pinch of salt, but I think it reflects the fact that trust or vaccine hesitancy doesn't seem to be an issue. The question is the stuff to us, right? Fund us or get vaccines to us, build the infrastructure, and it's okay. Um, there are other questions, of course, saying the issue of what vaccine and the fact that the virus and the vaccine are in this sort of game of catch of, you know, and the virus is always quicker than the vaccine uh, because it's not bounded by a particular point in time. So there are all of these issues as well. So uh, I don't see, but I would I would like to bring in uh, both Saima and Orzela on this. Uh, I'm fascinated by the idea that both the eastern end of the region and the western end of the region uh, are, are, are present. Um, on once more, really looking, I guess, not so much from the ground, but from from your particular sort of sit- locations or situations um, and your own experiences, what is the way forward? Um, if I were to interview you, Zaima, and say, okay, you know, you're in Bangladesh, what is the way forward? 
We've seen all these problems. Do we do without a vaccine at all? Um, for, for a large part of last year, we were still um, banking on a very unscientific uh, concept called herd immunity. We had actual politicians talking about herd immunity. We had um, journalists and policymakers debating about herd immunity. I mean, of course, this theory was, was completely was completely debunked. Um, but that, that 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 sort of belief or sort of resignation uh, of, uh, towards herd immunity is definitely making a comeback in in Bangladesh. I I can I can I can assure you of of that much because um, when the vaccines, for example, when we first managed our first batch of vaccines and we realized we we thought that we would be getting three core vaccine doses from India, that was definitely an uplifting moment during this year when we thought that there was going to be an end um, uh, to this. That no longer. Is the, the end line um, to this race is no longer very visible uh, for people. For example, during this lockdown, um, it was very, very difficult to enforce this lockdown uh, because the the, the 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 general public perception was that this is this is our new normal. People will die, unfortunately, and and we just need to get used to it. Our hospitals will be overburdened. We will not be able to save everyone, and that's just the new reality. Lock. This lockdown particularly was very difficult. Businesses have been vehemently opposing this lockdown. Um, every single day, businesses have been uh, uh, protesting. Large businesses, small businesses have uh, have been completely decimated. Small businesses, uh, they're not even in the picture anymore. But large businesses now now are coming coming forward, and they're also opposing the lockdown. Um, we are considering. Uh, uh, the government is still still on 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 the hedge uh, on. It's still it's still hinging on extending the lockdown, but we're not very sure what what's going to happen. For example, transport um, owners uh, today held a meeting with the government, and they were like, "You need to start buses again. You need to start um, uh, commuter uh, vehicles again, because we're not going to be able to survive uh, well, well another lockdown. We're not going to be able to survive if we if you keep the economy closed." Um, so. When it comes to the way forward, there seems to be more uh, a, a resig- more of a resignation as opposed to having like solution based um, um, uh, steps that we can take. We definitely don't have any solution based steps at the moment. I think that is tragic. Ursula, how about you? Um, you had you had spoken earlier about the need for global cooperation. Get paper. I think th- sad but true. That's not going to happen tomorrow. And the virus is not going to wait for global cooperation to. Um, so from your position, I mean, what do you see? Is there anything you see that can be immediately done in terms of building public, I know, but in terms of public health? Um, um, thank you. Uh, following to earlier points that I've made in terms of global cooperation or regional cooperation, I think uh, when it comes to address the issue of vaccine hesitancy, we should not wait for the regional and global cooperation to work and have results and then start campaigning. There has to be uh, uh, as much as possible at different levels uh, um, awareness raising campaigns that can give people accurate information. There's a lot of false information spreading around. Social media is unfortunately contributing to that one way or another. Some of this probably are not conspiracy, but disappeared in the middle of conspiracy. 
and, 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 and that requires a very strong cooperation between health organizations, the, the state uh, institutions uh, uh, dealing with health matters and also civil society in our region, where there can be a joint uh, collaborative action of continuously and systematically trying to raise awareness and prepare people. What is vaccination? Is this a cure? If not, is to prevent, uh, uh, we say with Kaya, which is like prevention. So it's prevention in what way it operates. Uh, that, that's, that's, uh, one uh, way of helping. And, and speaking of lockdowns, uh, there is also a discussion as we speak in Kabul, uh, within the, uh, health sector about a possible, uh, round of 40 to 60 days of, um, lockdown. And again, people are terrified because, I mean, we are not talking about countries where people can go under iron furloughs or, you know, get payments and all that, like in the West, uh, in other countries. For many people, sitting at home is not an option. Today, in the morning, there was an explosion in, in Jalalabad city, eastern Afghanistan, and one of my relatives, unfortunately, got uh, injured in that uh, incident. And when you have this conversation with, she's a doctor, and when we have this conversation, can you just, you know, slow down and not go? And she says, what would I eat? What would my family eat if I stay home? So even violent attacks like suicide bombings or IEDs these days are quite common or magnetic bombings are common. Even if these things cannot put people to sit at home and wait for the situation to get, you know, calm, how can a virus do really? Like, so, you know, lockdowns are not solutions. And I think one problem, if you look back for the last year from the World Health Organization that I can see is this issue of having like one package of solution addressing the whole in the same way. And it doesn't really work there. And we've seen that practice show that's in this pandemic that we have to have like concrete and find more creative solutions to to uh, contribute to prevention as opposed to just declaration of uh, general lockdowns. Really probably more mass distribution of masks that can be mass information in terms of, you know, hygiene and cleaning is, is much effective than forcing people to sit at home and not do, because also when it comes to space, uh, we know that physical space matters. So highly concentrated areas could be, you know, uh, more restricted, but places with, with open areas could, could have more possibilities. So there can be more creative ways of looking into things rather than just simply ordering a lockdown and uh, uh, expecting it to have uh, to be effective. Thank you. Ravi, I think you want to, I think you want to come in on this. Yes, I think lots of things have come up. Um, I mean, just in terms of what I think of the future, I'm, I'm relatively pessimistic because I think we do have solutions, but then very unlikely to happen at the current time. We need global cooperation. We need sensible action by lots of governments, even within their own countries. And that's the problem we face. And what we're going to face is not necessarily a bad outcome for Europe or the North America. I think they will, they will get on. They, they have, you know, enough money to keep the economies afloat. They will vaccinate. I think we're going to see exacerbation of the pre-existing global economic inequalities, and they're going to get worse with the exception of the few emerging economies who got this right, places like Vietnam, obviously China, right, even China. So I think that's that's the thing that's going to happen. And why did this happen? I, I think that, you know, if you look right at the beginning, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this, you know, this debate about do we kill this virus or do we you know, live with it to let the economy take precedence. And as you are all learning, letting the economy take precedence 
in the end backfired in a big way, right? It, it, the, the only countries who can protect their marginalized people are the countries with no virus, right? So, so this is, was not understood. And if you think about where I think the idea came from, I mean, it had a lot of intellectual backing. It came from the UK. The UK basically said, oh, we'll do lockdowns till we get a vaccine, right? And of course, when you do lockdowns in the UK or Europe, you can put money into people's pockets. You can keep, you know, the, the, the zombie companies continuing to operate because, it, you know, the state will pay for it. We can't do that in Sri Lanka. We don't have money to do that. And yet they, that idea, I think, took hold of the imagination. And, you know, Dwight, I think, deals with the epistemology of ideas. It took the, you know, it embraced the imagination of leaders everywhere else. And so we've tried to live with this and prioritize the economy. How we turn that back, I don't know. Now, for Sri Lanka, I still hope, and I think we still have a little window opportunity to basically, even without the vaccine, get back to zero. But we'll need a lot of effort in doing the right things, which we're not at the moment. But it's feasible for us. We have the infrastructure. I I don't know what countries like India and Bangladesh, most of Africa, Latin America do, where you've had widespread transmission, right? You've probably had 30, 40% of your population infected, and you don't have the public health infrastructure and you don't have the facts. I really don't know what, what the solution is to that because the problem with this virus is unless you get it to zero, it will just keep on coming back every, every two or three months. I mean, India has just learned this at a huge cost. So I, I don't know. I really don't know what we say unless, as I said, the only way out is that moonshot where we get true genuine global cooperation to produce the supplies and everything else we need to do this and a, and a rethink on, on the global strategy. And I'd just like to add to that, that it's not as if we're testing either. Um, our testing numbers have, I mean, of course it's improved, but we still have abysmally low testing ratios per, 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 per say, per million population. So we still don't know what, what the actual scenario of infection is like. And this is something we were talking about before the webinar started is that um, um, uh, Shubhanga was mentioning that, oh, the infection rate has gone down. Yes, the infection rate is actually below 10% for the first time in a month. Um, the daily infection rate is below 10% for the first time in a month. But like, uh, most of us are very skeptic about it and we're taking it with a grain of salt because, because when it comes to, um, we're not very sure how, how related that is, uh, to people being, being unwilling to, 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 to test people, being unable to test because of the lockdown. These are such a hazy, hazy, uh, concepts for us right now that we're not, we don't necessarily know what, um, how much of our population was even affected to begin with. Okay. I'm going to throw some, something at you. I'm going to throw a couple of examples at you, both of rich countries that have very low, uh, rates of vaccination so far. And I'm taking China out of the equation because they went for an elimination strategy, squash the virus whenever you see it, take that out. Japan has got, I think, basically South Asian levels of immunization, right? But the cases are small. You have countries like Vietnam, Laos, uh, Cambodia, uh, bordering China, and therefore, it's a fact they've been vulnerable since, you know, this virus thing. Very low. Uh, Thailand has got very good public health infrastructure. They've got the experience of HIV AIDS. So 
there's some answer for, you know, they have. But you, we do have examples of poor countries without the greatest infrastructure in the world managing to keep transmission and rates of, uh, you know, of both cases and I guess infections low, uh, transmission low as well. And I guess you, they seem to have done it without vaccination, but with basically really old-fashioned things. Well, one, of course, is contact tracing, isolation, anything to prevent a virus going from person A to person B, right? Do you think this is possible? Do we have the infrastructure? Do we have the social discipline? I don't know. Discipline is an awful word to use. But do we have the will to do this? Do we Can we mobilize ordinary people? Can, instead of us having this conversation, can people out on the streets, the people working in garment factories in Bangladesh, the people who are living in slums in India, could we get them to have this conversation? And these are just ideas that I'm throwing out, but these are the sort of ideas I think we need because if we go to wait for vaccines, this great savior that's going to descend from the skies, I think we'll be waiting a long term. So I, I, I just, just thoughts off the top, but well, not off the top of my head, things I've been thinking about for a long time. So uh, I throw that, Ravi, sorry, your hand is up. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, we at our institute, I mean, we just we published a paper a few months ago in Health Affairs, and we we showed that in fact from the first wave, the most important intervention was testing. Right, lockdowns in most developing countries were pretty useless, and India knows this. So we had a lockdown, and it just kept on spreading. So I think testing is absolutely critical. I'm actually also a global citizen. I'm, I'm currently now in Sydney. Sydney is also pretty slow on vaccination. Um, we've been told people in our age group would get vaccinated till the end of the year at this point. They're in no rush. They've dropped AstraZeneca now because it's too dangerous for them. And they're in no big rush. They're going to go to Pfizer. And the reason is they test. Testing, tracing, and isolation, as long as you've closed your borders, works. That If you look at South Asia, you didn't mention the obvious success story in South Asia. It's not enough. It's Bhutan. Bhutan is free of virus, mm-hmm. right? They had the highest testing rates in South Asia, right? If you look at Southeast Asia, nobody would think Cambodia would have got this. I mean, Cambodia is, you know, it's a pretty dysfunctional society, but they got it because they tested, right? Vietnam tested, Australia tested, New Zealand tested, China tested. Japanese actually aren't doing that well this at the moment. That's, they're probably going to lose the Olympics. They're going because they didn't test enough. And it's a bit like Sri Lanka. We did reasonably well in the first wave. We have good tracing capacity, public health strategy. But we, the public health people in Sri Lanka, and I think the public health people in Japan, did not accept the importance of testing. And I, I think this reflects a cultural problem in the medical community. Public health people are very averse to medical interventions and testing is sort of, you know, you put, you know, put things down people's throats and send them off to lab. It's very medical. There's some averseness, I think, to doing testing, certainly in Sri Lanka in general before COVID and a reluctance to invest in it. Uh, I can tell you that our ministry was offered testing machines and we turned them down earlier in the pandemic. This, this is the incredible mistakes that were made, but this was repeated across the world. So I think, yes, we can do this. But the, the only way that countries have got to zero so far 
is not in vaccines, it's been very aggressive testing, tracing, and isolation. And that's the cost of it. Wuhan did it. You know, remember, you, you know, forgotten about Wuhan, people are dying right left, right, and center. And now it's forgotten. But Wuhan eventually beat it through testing. It wasn't the lockdown. I mean, all the research indicates it was the testing and isolation of people in the households and pulling them out and putting them into institutional quarantine that actually did it for them. The lockdown wasn't good enough to get the transmission down uh, to, to where, it would, where it would stop. Okay, just, uh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to call I'd just like to add to that, that, that the testing costs in Bangladesh are still very, very prohibitively expensive. So, for example, an on-demand test, if you're going to be... There are two. You can get you can get tested in two ways. You can either go to a public or a government facility and get tested uh, for free. That's not going to get. That's not going to cost you anything. I think. Uh, or you could uh, get an on-demand test at a private facility. And a private facility would cost you nearly about fifty dollars. So fifty dollars for a test. That's like half the the minimum wage of of the monthly min, monthly minimum wage that a garment worker earns. A garment worker is not going to be able to, to access an on-demand test. And when it comes to the government facilities, um, we a year has gone by, but it's the same scenario. Every single morning, they'll be lining up from like 3 a.m. in the morning because most hospitals can only do like they have only have enough PCR machines to do about like 200 to 300 tests. And so you have people lining up from like 3 or 4 in the morning, hoping that they can get they can be the first one in through the door. Um, when, when, when the doors open at 9 a.m. And that, that scenario still hasn't changed. We're going, we've been following this, uh, uh, pretty solidly in, in, at the Daily Star. Um, every single day we, we've published photos of people fainting, like lying unconscious on the sidewalk because they're, they're, they've been standing on the sidewalk waiting for a test since like 5 a.m. and then they just like lost consciousness. Um, but that, those, it seems that those, those concerns are still falling on deaf ears and of course are, with that being the scenario, I'm not sure the testing is going to get any better. It seems as if um, this is something that we did, did talk about last year, but here too, uh, it seems as if this has been talked about so much, no one's talking about it anymore. Yeah. May I just add on the testing part? So um, I think we're also not entirely different from other parts. Um, uh, there are testing facilities more than before, obviously. Uh, but then, um, if you look into the official numbers, approximately 400,000 plus are tested so far. So in a country of over 30 million population, that's just nothing. I personally traveling, uh, moving from one lockdown to another in the last year, I count like at least I tested myself three, four times one or two out of uh, not feeling well and another two because I will, I needed to travel. So pre-traveling test, well, actually six times I had another two tests. So um, uh, we know that people with privileges, with facilities have access to that ordinary people doesn't. Uh, and because of the stigma involved in this, stigma is economic purely, but also sociocultural, I would say. Uh, people avoid testing. Um, and, uh, we just, you know, to get a sense of numbers in Afghanistan, I don't know how this is in, in, in other parts of South Asia. We just multiply everything into six or eight, uh, uh, when it comes to testing. So if a single individual is tested positive, we assume that the entire household is hit and the household average is six to eight, uh, I minimum, 
um, it is just, you know, husband, wife and children. But we know that uh, our families are living in, in much extended families. So if, and they are, uh, you know, generally like it's impossible to really respect the social distancing and congregations on different occasions from funeral to uh, wedding ceremonies to, for example, prayers nowadays that we are um, observing Ramadan, a holy month. Uh, I heard, you know, in the mosque, the, the mullah was saying to uh, to some relatives that, okay, now the pandemic situation is calmed down, so don't forget to come to Taraway. Taraway is this collective, uh, you know, prayers in the evenings. Uh, luckily, one one good thing that happened, uh, I saw that yesterday or day before yesterday, there were news about religious um, 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 scholars or religious leaders or uh, uh, heads of the mosques, uh, given also a priority for the vaccination for the sole purpose of trying to work on the awareness. I think this is a very positive aspect uh, that we've sort of practiced. I saw at least in the news that there was a, uh, you know, a piece about uh, one of the religious uh, uh, community members talking to the public and saying that it's important to do vaccination because they're also, you know, at the end, it also becomes a religious issue. Is this a halal uh, vaccination or not? And so one has to really uh, cover all these matters uh, for health purposes and also for ensuring that people earn the trust. So, um Testing facilities, I think, uh, um, and, and I fully agree, uh, earlier on, I, I remember, I think Singapore was one of those uh, role models at the very early ages, uh, stages uh, of this situation where they, they managed so well with the testing. So at that time, we didn't have the facilities. Now, I think the same way the vaccine productions are discussed, I believe there should be also discussions about availability of testings, because that is if not the same, equally important in terms of, you know, ensuring that mobility is controlled that have, but I think it's still, we are probably far, far away from, from it being enough for people, really. Thank you. Um, um, Shubanka, I'd like to... Yeah. Do you have anything from, you know, I've lost my chat thing for some reason, so... Uh, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, no, I, Do you have anything for our questions? Uh, Yes, and uh, also the result of our um, of the poll that you conducted on uh, yes uh, private versus we, public provision of vaccine. Yeah, I think we might come to the results of the poll towards the end. Um, I mean, since we're talking about inequality and segregation in access, uh, I had a, a question, um, and maybe we can begin with with Dwaypan, um, also given his work on you know how the urban poor in in Delhi. Uh, kind of negotiated the failing healthcare system and you know you write about how that's the latest in a series of failures um and we're seeing you know devastating scenes from india um i mean how do we um you know what kind of implication and what kind of you know from a social scientific point of view how do we think about the impact of what's happening uh in terms of the social fabric what happens to communities i mean it, it must leave an imprint and what kind of as a social scientist how how do we think about uh, the changes, you know, in the next 10, 15, 20 years? That's a great question. So I, uh, I'll say that, let, let me put it in this way. I don't think right now there is a crisis. I don't want to underplay the uh, extent of the crisis. It is unprecedented, but I will still say that the problem is not COVID-19 and the solution are not vaccines. Uh, the problem, it's all, uh, the, the problem and the solution is infrastructure, infrastructure, and infrastructure. That is what, uh, 
is unfortunately and inescapably the only way out of this. Why do I say this? Because COVID-19 will become endemic, like all viruses do in, in certain ways. Uh, and the question is, what do we do? How do we manage this process? Because we'll not be getting to herd immunity perhaps at any point, uh, but we'll get to this way in which it becomes a manageable uh, uh, virus that you vaccinate every year on. Uh, so how do we deal with something that is on the way to becoming endemic? Uh, and what do we do when the next uh, pandemic comes? We had Ebola not too far, uh, far back. We also forget the many, many plagues and outbreaks and uh, epidemics that happened on a yearly basis in India, for example. Uh, in 1996, there was a uh, plague outrage in, uh, outbreak in Gujarat. There was, and they've been, every year we have small episodes of this, just because it's not a big global problem, we don't address or talk about it. So all this to say that uh, we're going, we're, this is not the last time we're going to face a problem like this. Uh, maybe it'll be at different scales, maybe it'll be different uh, proportions. Uh, but the way out is to prepare ourselves in ways that uh, things like contact tracing, things like, uh, <clears throat> sorry, delivery systems are put in place. And uh, the Indian government has been at uh, in its entire post-colonial period, uh, culpable in the reason, uh, uh, culpable in why COVID-19 has been so disastrous. We spend amongst the least in healthcare infrastructure, uh, in any country in the world, in the bottom 20, nearly always. So if that is the case, I think the problem is, uh, that and not the many pandemics and epidemics that will continuously break out. We need to fix, uh, the basic public health failures that, uh, are not new at all to people who are experiencing disease. Okay. Just to open the question to, to others also, I mean, you know, we're also curious how, what the role of, you know, when we talk about health infrastructure, I think there's a lot of the imagination is that of, of, of the state uh, or public uh, uh, health infrastructure. Uh, but we also know last 20, 30 years has been this massive rise in, in the private industry in, in, in healthcare sector, you know, around South Asia. So, I mean, I'm curious, what is the scene like in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and Afghanistan and what has been the role of private players and how is the public sphere kind of, is there a critique of the private player? Are they seen as saviors at a time when the public uh, sector isn't there? You know, I mean, and, and there is debate on, on, on their position and what might have led to, you know, kind of economic changes and, and state um, involvement. So yeah, please, uh, maybe uh, we might start with uh, Ravi, you. Yes, I, I just asked that and posted this comment on, on the previous comments. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, sadly, of course, we need better health infrastructure everywhere. But, you know, this is a long-term process and it's not going to be, you know, I, I, frankly, I'm not sure it's going to be accelerated that much by this pandemic. I mean, this is a long-term social issue for most countries. You know, Let's be realistic. That's going to take a long time. The, the real, but then I would also point out, you know, you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this index, the Global Health Security Index, and then there was another one called the Disease Vulnerability Index, both produced in the United States by defense analysts. And they ranked countries by infrastructure and capability. It was completely wrong. The countries that were supposedly had the best infrastructure, the most preparedness, the United States and the UK did the worst, Right. So this, in case of COVID-19, this was not really an infrastructure problem. 
It was a problem of basically could you do the basic public health stuff which we've known for 100 years would do it well. And did you were you willing to make those decisions, right? And that's more a political problem, right? You can have a lot of infrastructure but still mess up. And you can have no infrastructure like Cambodia and still get it right. So, you know, I think that, that's, that's, you know, the issue of pandemic and health access is a bit different. I think in terms of moving forward, what will happen next? I don't know. And I think it really depends. I mean, it's shown us the difficulties of solving these complex problems at the, at the country level as well as the global level. I, I don't know whether countries, they may be more willing to act next time because, you know, like countries which had SARS, I mean, Thomas, I think, lived in Hong Kong, presumably during, during the SARS epidemic. People were a bit more aware, okay, we have to do something serious about this kind of problem. So maybe that will linger. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I think we, we need to be realistic that we need to figure out what went wrong in the policy process, even at the country level. Right. For Sri Lanka, now is not the time, but we will eventually address why did we, with all our resources as a country, health resources, get it wrong? And that's up. And I think there needs to be, I think, an independent, you know, review that in each country. Um, and, and there needs to be an independent global review. We need to, once we get over the current, you know, hysteria, and right now you can't think about China properly because people have all sorts of views about that. And, in the United States, but we need to have a rethink about policy process. Maybe Zaima? Um, again, uh, could on, I quickly respond to that? Is that okay? Yes. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But what, uh, when I mean infrastructure, I don't mean, uh, I think infrastructure in a very political sense. So some, I saw someone in the audience actually who's written a book uh, called A Pandemic Perhaps, which is how uh, pandemic preparedness became a billion-dollar industry over the last 20 years. Uh, these reports are an outcome of a massively funded uh, approach to, quote-unquote, being prepared. What it, But the form of preparedness is what matters. It wasn't about bolstering public health, uh, basic public health systems. It was about these very top-down technical interventions that were high-cost, non-scalable, uh, so that's the, that. That's why these indexes are completely off the mark. They index something that is not actually on the ground. Uh, mm-hmm. So I absolutely agree. It's about uh, the it's the infrastructure uh, it by itself is not what's at stake, but the political ways in which we define what infrastructure is is what's at stake. I think we I think we probably agree on that. It's, it's it's a softer thing. It's not the yeah, infrastructure is a bad, misleading <laughs> term. Maybe. Um. Maybe Zaima and then Or Orzala just uh, on on the you know the public private divide and how that might have impacted what we're seeing now with pandemic response, but also vaccination and and what might happen in the future. So I'd like to talk about the pandemic response, the public private divide between uh, when it comes to pandemic pandemic response. Um, so for a large part of the the year last year, the private sector was not actually a lot. They. Uh, they just didn't step up. They, uh, uh, we have, it's, we have, we do have a large number of private hospitals. It's not as if the private hospitals or the private healthcare industry isn't, isn't, isn't a, a, a good thriving business. It is most, almost every single, um, large industrial group that's out there, they have massive hospitals. But, but what we didn't see is, is them stepping up and actually doing the, the remodeling, the retrofitting needed to provide a pandemic response as, as, as fast as they could 
or 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 as uh, 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 as soon as they could last year, they did not. So the public hospitals, unfortunately, I think there were like five only at uh, uh, to begin with, were were the first ones which which have to start taking in um, COVID nineteen patients. They soon caught up. The private sector definitely soon caught up, and they did open their doors. But right now, the costs are absolutely absolutely astronomical. Um, the out of pocket payment is uh can go up to um for 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 an ICU bed in in a private hospital uh can go up to like a lakh every single day so of uh, of uh, a lakh taka that would be around um give me just a second um yeah that would be around like eleven hundred dollars per thing every single day that is not something that yeah private healthcare although it is right now available that is not something that uh, most of our population can afford. So we have, it seems like there is definitely a gap of information as well regarding what happens to people who are not being able to afford this healthcare. Because right now what we're seeing is a crisis of the rich, uh, people who can afford healthcare or people who can perhaps um, access um, 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 this, a large amount of money on credit to afford the uh, mm. the, the healthcare, and then we're seeing their crisis. We have no idea what's actually happening to people who who can't even dream of of, of a hospital bed or an ICU bed in in in, in, in a private in, in a private hospital setting. And as for the public hospitals, um, I even for example, uh, we've been we've been we've been visiting hospitals every every other day, and and what we've seen is that because of of an oxygen and a bed crisis. Uh, you you can perhaps get a space on the floor, or you can get like a metal uh, a trolley to land your back on. But but if you need if you need if you need an oxygen cylinder, that's something that you're going to have to get yourself. If if for example the hospital is not equipped with a central oxygen supply, which a lot of hospitals aren't, they don't have a lot of them don't have a central oxygen plants. So then once again you're having even if you do go to a, a, a if, even if you do go to the public healthcare system, you're still having to pay out of pocket and pay really, really large amounts of money out of pocket. Uh, medication is, is uh, once again, when it comes to the medication, uh, the, the right now, the two most prescribed medication are, are Remdesivir and um, uh, Actemra. So Remdesivir is, I forget how much it costs, but Actemra is $45,000 for every single, sorry, 45000 taka for every single dose. Um, that's around $500. So, these are not medications that our, our, our general population can can access. Um, right now, probably the least expensive option is uh, plasma donation. And uh, that has many... I'm not sure that... For example, when it, when it came to uh, South African and the Brazil varieties, uh, scientific studies have shown that plasma of uh, 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 plasma antibodies or, 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 or recovering plasma doesn't necessarily have as much of... Um, an actual effect or, or neutralizing effect on, on these varieties um, because they're just not the same strain. So uh, we are definitely at a stage where our private healthcare system is benefiting, but not necessarily benefiting in the guise of, of trying to provide public service, but they're definitely not providing public service. Yeah, I have just one quick comment on... Uh... Both, I mean, the most expensive drugs, and I want to know why this is. Once more, I think it's something to, it is to do with the pharmaceutical. Remdesivir is pretty much useless. At best, it, uh, it, it's been found to reduce hospital stay by four to five days when given to mild to moderate patients at the right time. 
But now it's, it's here, it's universally prescribed, as in Bangladesh, there's this huge black market. Plasma is not very helpful either, right? And this is what clinical trials are for. In terms of treatment, basically we need oxygen and you need steroids basically to prevent your lungs. But these are the two that 99% of cases, 95, 90 probably without even oxygen, but the remaining, that's all you need. But it, this is the subject for another discussion. How did all these drugs, right, which are in short supply of limited utility, suddenly become gold? I can understand why vaccines are in short supply, but at least they work. These don't. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, clinicians were basically throwing whatever they could. And you, you can't blame them for that. Over the last year, clinical trials, randomized trials have been held. We've got pretty strong results. And these results all show that it doesn't really help that much, except in very specific issues. So how did that happen? Anyway, Shubanka, what, how are we for time? Um, I think we're pretty close to the end. Um, I just wanted to hear if Orzala had any perspective yes. on, on this public-private divide quickly. Um, and, you know, the, the scene of, of individual family members carrying oxygen tanks in India, which seems like a, a terrible future possibility for other countries in the region. So just to get a sense of what's that like in Afghanistan. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Shabanga. Uh, in terms of um, the private sector's role, uh, just before that, uh, what uh, uh, um, Thomas was mentioning in terms of that, uh, I wanted to also add that in Afghanistan, it became the same case. Um, one relative, I knew that he was going through one of those really intensive care for like months. Uh, the family would buy some injections. Now, I don't know really what the names of those injections was up to something called 6,000 Fs, which is approximately 70 to 80 US dollars per injection. So they would find it in somewhere in the pharmacies in Kabul city. And uh, he needed one of these injections at least a day uh, for a very uh, intense period. Now, like I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't know exactly what the, that was, but I can say that the pharmaceutical industry have really exploited the situation and there hasn't been any regulations to control that a simple medication should not suddenly go rise like the, 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 the price of oil or gas uh, goes up in winters. You know, it just was the same kind of reaction you could see. Um, uh, private sector is also um, um, involved in the in the testing uh, process, uh, and unfortunately, that also doesn't have a very controlled price. So you can do the same tests with different prices in different uh, places, and I think that's not unique to um, our region or probably Afghanistan or India and so forth. I can see that also even in the UK, that's the case. So you can do the same PCR test with different prices sometimes. There is a difference in terms of timing, but other times with the same time, but different offers. So I don't know how free economy sort of like market economy or not control over prices is, is contributing to, to that. And in terms of, uh, you know, the oxygen's availability or the facilities and infrastructures, one quick point that we have seen in Afghanistan, particularly in the initial stages, it also got parallel to this, to the, to the sort of political uh, events that are happening and evolving as well. At one point, they suddenly start building hospitals 
copying some kind of a Chinese model of having a massive hospital being built. And there was massive uh, reaction to that and say that look, we don't need infra physical infrastructures for this. What we need is like making available a mosque in a village so that you can do the self-isolation. There are quarantines there. So we have been in contact um, with government trying to communicate these messages and say, don't waste your time. Okay, fine. If places require a hospital, build them a hospital, but you don't need to make that connected to the COVID because COVID does not need entirely the, that level of infrastructure. On the other hand, when it comes to ventilator machines, thanks to our generous, you know, sponsors and supporters from the world, we received ventilator machines. But guess what? Nobody knew how to use it. In many, many cases, ventilator machines ended up in market Peshawar markets or, you know, neighboring countries sold in the black market because A, there is issues of inaccountability and corruption. And B, uh, there was also issue of uh, um, lack of cap uh, capability of uh, being able to use it. On the other side, uh, the, the, the basic oxygen price also similar to other things that we mentioned uh, rise up uh, in the times of higher needs. Uh, and it's predictable that the same thing will happen. Now, there isn't any very uh, accurate data whether we have enough oxygens if we are going towards the third wave, are we ready for it? And what are the kind of requirements uh, that we could uh, have in terms of you know, medical supply for the in intensive cares, oxygens, ventilator machines? Have we provided in this phase any uh, kind of facilities or any kind of trainings for 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 medical uh, workers in terms of you know using the the advanced ventilator machines. Um, I don't have any specific data, I'm afraid, but my very distant observation is that probably we don't, um, as all those things requires quite a long procedure to really uh, materialize uh, in the um, uh, in a, in a time that I don't think uh, anyone uh, really worked on it more seriously. Thank you. Um, I think, Thomas, we've gone five minutes beyond the yeah. scheduled time. So I'll take that as a good sign of a very engaging and interesting conversation. Um, do you have any final words? Not really. Um, I think this is something that maybe we could all take away. And we will get through this pandemic. The question really is that this is an event that is going to change the world. All previous, whether it's 1918, whether it's been the outbreaks of plague that we saw in the 18th and 19th, they've had significant political, economic, and social changes because you're ripping apart the existing fabric of the world. And I think the thing for us really to think about or it is, is really what kind of a post-pandemic world we want and how do we go about building it right now, right? How do we use the space that now exists that the space that this crisis has created to build something better. Um, and I think that is the only way that, you know, we can sort of sustain our own, you know, in, in the midst of our own despair. I, mean, I think all of my uh, Twitter feeds are full of people asking for oxygen, right? Yeah. ICU beds. And, uh, and I think this is something we've all, um, and stories of somebody's father who died in a, you know, waiting for a bed outside a hospital and so on and so forth. And, uh, and, and we're not even directly suffering. I mean, you know, it, um, why, if you have some, some uh, you know, your family, but for all of us, it's everybody, it's, it's stressful. And the only way really to make sense of all of this is really to try 
and find space to create something better at the end of this. And uh, that's the only thought that. Uh, yeah, no, I think those are those are that's a good note to end on. And um, I want to thank everyone, all the speakers and Thomas, uh, for a very rich and wide-ranging discussion. Um, I also want to thank our audience, both on Zoom and Facebook Live, uh, and for their questions and for their time. Um, and um, also want to remind at the end that you can support Himal's work by being a member. Uh, you just go to our website and uh, you'll also get a free copy of our right side of map delivered to you. So um, keep following our work. And thank you, everyone, for making uh, this a very interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Lovely meeting all of you. Take care. Yeah, Stay take safe. Care. Yes. Stay yes.